0: Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy.
1: I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 through 16.
0: This particular set of chapters is interesting because chapter 14 is a, a build-off of what we covered a little bit in chapter 12 with the idea of the gifts of the spirit. And he he really zeroes in on two gifts in particular, the gift of speaking in tongues and, and by default, the gift of interpretation of tongues, as well as the gift of prophecy. So, if you've ever, ever wondered why we don't Spend more time and energy and effort in our church, focusing on this speaking of tongues, this uh, evangelical perspective of what they call glossolalia. It's this um, manifestation of speaking in in a heavenly tongue. Um, Chapter fourteen really gives more details as to why that isn't as big of an emphasis to us. Besides the fact that in the early days of the church in Kirtland, Ohio, and some of the surrounding areas, some of those earliest members of the church within a year, two, uh, they were taking the speaking in tongue things to a whole new level, and Joseph Smith received some direct revelation about, about that issue at that time.
1: This verse nine, chapter 14, I'm just jumping ahead. We will get back to the beginning of the chapter. Paul says, likewise, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. So let's just talk for just a brief moment. The gifts of the Spirit are intended to bless other people, to help them feel God's love and to see his hand in their lives. Some people have seen the gifts of the Spirit as an expression of, I now have God's Spirit with me. So how would I prove that God's Spirit with, is with me but in expressing a gift of the Spirit? And you got to imagine for the ancient people, it was really unusual for somebody to, out of nowhere, speak a foreign language and to be understood. The idea was only a god could do that. And so if you have God inhabiting you, so you are being inspired, that means the Spirit is in you, or you're enthusiastic, that comes from... And theo, God is in you, the idea is that if you're doing something that a normal human isn't doing, that must be a manifestation that God is with you. So, some Christians, even in the time of Joseph Smith, are trying to prove that we now have more access to God by our demonstration of the gifts of the Spirit. Now, in theory, that's not a bad thing. Shouldn't we want to demonstrate that God is in our lives? Absolutely. But the caution is, if we go overboard in those demonstrations, it may cause people confusion, or in this case in verse 9, if you're communicating and nobody understands, it's not useful. So it's powerful that Paul focuses back on chapter 13 that the greatest gift is charity. So in everything we talk about, we have to ask ourselves, are people feeling more of God's love because of how I'm enacting gifts of the Spirit? am I feeling more of God's love? And if the answer is no, if our expression of the gifts of the Spirit are actually getting in the way of people feeling and experiencing charity, we might just have to dial back a bit and kind of moderate how we're expressing some of those gifts.
0: It's a, it's a really good reminder, this kind of the order of operations that you've introduced us to here, Taylor, this idea that you remember the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Ghost came and fell on all of the people in that group, the 120 disciples who were gathered together. They were filled with the Spirit, and they began speaking in all of these languages. And then the 3,000 people came and assembled, and everybody heard them speaking as if they were natively speaking their own tongue. So, did you notice the order of operations? the Spirit of the Lord was poured out, and then they spoke in tongues. Well, what happened in those early days of the church and the correction that Joseph Smith was able to receive from heaven for those early saints is, you don't start acting in bizarre ways or speaking in in what what are unknown words to try to bring the Spirit into the meeting, which is what they were having happen there. And so if you come down now into chapter 14, let's watch Paul interact with this discussion. He opens with verse one, follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts. Another friendly reminder that our chapter breaks are very late additions to the biblical text. This was just one letter to the Corinthian saints. There was no chapter 13 or chapter 14. It went, Paul simply went from a discussion about gifts of the Spirit in chapter 12 onto uh, showing us a more excellent way, which is the pure love of Christ in chapter 13, charity, and all of its attributes, these perfected attributes of Christ. And then we finish that discussion of charity, and he's saying, continue to pursue or follow after this charity, but desire all those spiritual gifts that came right before his discussion on charity. And then he says, but rather that ye may prophesy. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue, or Joseph Smith says, another tongue, a different tongue, speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. But then, in verse 3, he gives you the contrast. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to Edification or building up, strengthening, and exhortation and comfort.
1: These are powerful words.
0: they're they're amazing. And so Paul's playing these two gifts of the spirit off of each other, saying, "Look, if you have to pick between one of these two, take the prophesying every single time, because it's so edifying and it's so comforting, whereas the gift of speaking in tongues is going to draw more attention to you. People aren't going to know what you said unless, and he he gives a qualifier a little bit later on here in in the chapter. So he says in verse five, I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. So there's the second time he's brought in this concept of edification or edifying. For Paul, who's now acting as an apostle, giving these corrections to the Corinthian saints, you can see how he's received word that there's probably a lot of this uh, speaking in tongues going on in the church, but he may be saying, be careful, because not everybody who's speaking in words that you don't understand may be under the influence of the Holy Ghost speaking those words. So it's this, this caution, but to say, verse six, now, brethren, if I can't come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? He's saying, I'm, I'm not going to help you. You'll just walk away thinking, wow, Paul, he's amazing. He speaks in tongues. But now you would be building me up rather than me building you up. Is kind of the line of of reasoning that he's using with these Corinthian saints here. I
1: have a personal example of this. Uh, I've spent a lot of years in higher education in academic settings, and I have been deeply benefited from really thoughtful people who've paid the price for years to study things and make discoveries and express that in very clear academic vocabulary and academic writing. It's interesting, though, that sometimes that academic writing sounds like foreign tongues to regular people, and I've often uh, been hopeful that more academic writing, that the ideas, the discoveries get translated into a tongue that most of us can recognize and understand so we also can benefit. So this is for me been an interesting story just to see academics is awesome, but sometimes we get stuck speaking in foreign languages and and miss the opportunity to really edify people in a way that reaches them where they're at, and they can see how these ideas matter to them.
0: Love that. Now, if you jump down to verse 12, partway in here, he says, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. This is a beautiful qualifier to all of the previous invitations that he's given to seek earnestly these best gifts and to to desire them and go after them. His point here, that it, it's almost as if he's touched on it and touched on it and touched on it, but now he hones in on this idea of, but in all of your seeking of spiritual gifts, don't have it be for your gain or for your benefit. You'll notice the idea here is that ye may excel, not above any other people, not to win in any comparison, but to the edifying of the church. I love that Zion concept of if I'm seeking a gift, it's not for my own gain, it's to bless as many people as possible. And if everybody in my congregation is having that same desire and that same seeking and that same praying, we're all going to be edified way better than if each individual is in that audience seeking for their own gain. It's, it's the difference between this isolation um, gift-seeking versus this collective edifying the body of Christ gift-seeking. Such a beautiful concept here.
1: Well, it's back to the main idea of this letter. This letter, in part, was written to the ward in Corinth because of lots of disunity and chaos in the community, and Paul is trying to give them yet another way that they can be unified. And when we're in a body, a group of people, if we're all tugging in different ways, it just tears the body to pieces. Bodies cannot live like that. But we all decide, I'm going to play my role. I'm the hand, the foot, the eye, whatever my role is, I'm going to magnify that and do it really well so the whole body is edified or built or sustained in order for the larger group to succeed.
0: Now let's jump down to verse 19. Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding that my, by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. It's that idea if when we're speaking, if we're doing that in order for people to acknowledge how smart we are or how much learning we've had, then we're no longer edifying the church. We're seeking for the glory and the gain and the recognition of people. And I think 10,000 years from now, none of us are gonna look back and say, man, I wish I would have been more popular. I wish I would have had more people giving me praise and honor and glory, because that's not why we're here. We're here to come to know the Lord better and to give any glory to God and to edify others, to love God with all of our heart, mind and strength and love our neighbors ourselves. That's what we're trying to do. And now you can see how gifts of the Spirit can facilitate that process of discipleship on the covenant path. And I think it's probably important for us to mention here, Taylor, that in our church today, instead of putting so much energy or focus on this speaking in unknown tongues in church, or having an interpreter of that unknown tongue, I think most members of the church today would look at the gift of tongues in a very practical, pragmatic sort of a way of missionaries going throughout the world. They go to the missionary training center, and in a matter of three weeks, they go from knowing nothing about certain languages to being, being able to carry on a pretty pretty basic conversation in, in, in some cases, very complex foreign languages, and those missionaries are pleading with God, for the gift of tongues, but you'll notice what the pleading is rooted in. It's not so that they can get glory. It's so that they can share all of the thoughts and feelings and their their testimony and their conversion with people not in an unknown tongue, but in the native tongue of these people to whom they're going to go and serve. So I love this, this idea of not limiting the gift of tongues to the idea of glossolalia or speaking in in words that nobody understands, but to shift it to an edifying form of being able to build up the church wherever we've been called to labor. So, as we
1: get to the last verses of chapter 14, let's remember again that Paul is writing a letter to a very specific ward 2,000 years ago that's dealing with very specific problems. There are general principles that we can take that can matter to our lives. We have to look at what Paul is giving very specific instructions for how to solve a problem with too many people speaking in unknown tongues. I don't think most of us are in wards dealing with that on a regular basis like, oh my gosh, Sister Jones is at it again. We gotta go find that interpreter because we don't know what she's saying. So as we read these verses, just remember that these instructions made a lot of sense to the people 2000 years ago, and the very specific tactics That Paul is describing may no longer be immediately applicable in our lives. We just want to be careful not to hurt ourselves by using old advice based on good principles
0: that may in a new context not fit. That is very important to keep in mind as we read, especially this first column here of page 1456 in the English New Testament, uh, because it is loaded with specifics for them at that time, not eternal principles of of truth that should be translated into practice or that you would expect to find in in the church handbook of instructions today. So verse 27 says, if any man speak in an unknown tongue or another tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. He's saying if you don't have an interpreter, then let him keep silence in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. If you want to pray to God in that unknown tongue, it's between you and him, but don't draw attention to it in front of everybody.
1: Which again, would create disorder and disunity in a sacrament meeting. If somebody's just off blabbly in some language, nobody understands. Absolutely.
0: And then he says, if any man be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For you may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. Isn't it fascinating now when you can take scriptures like this, and, and most of you probably understood basically what Paul was saying, uh, if anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace, for you may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. And you say, I, I kind of get what's going on there. I love when you can look at the scriptures as one and teach them all together in the Doctrine and Covenant, section 88, in this great revelation for setting forth the order of the school of the prophets, the Lord takes that concept from Paul and he gives us what, in my opinion, is a huge upgrade. It's an enhancement in clarity and in focus here. Listen to these words in section 88, verse 122. Appoint among yourselves a teacher, And let not all be spokesmen at once. When you've got a room full of people who are speaking in tongues, it it can become chaotic. He says, let not all be spokesmen at once, but let one speak at a time, and let all listen unto his sayings, that when all have spoken, that all may be edified of all, and that every man may have an equal privilege." such a beautiful principle for teachers and students in any kind of a setting, whether it be at church or in the home or in general conference. You'll notice what happens at the general conference pulpit. They take turns. And all have this opportunity to teach and edify the church, all of those leaders in that setting as well as at the stake and the ward levels. So, then we come down to two of the the most troubling verses in, quite frankly, in all of the scripture for, for many people, because Paul is speaking through his cultural lens in a first century uh, dominated by a lot of pagan rights and privileges, now trying to figure out how to blend with a Jewish Christian group. So, these Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians and they do things very differently in a jewish context than they do in that gentile context and they're now all coming together in the same word and paul who was trained as a pharisee with a lot of really long standing hardline positions on the roles of men and women he's going to make some statements in verse 34 about the women and their role in church and ruling teaching leading speaking that we clearly do not hold to today in, in our church and thank heaven. Because once again, teaching the scriptures is one. We say the Lord is working with the people on the earth, line upon line, precept upon precept, and one of those is to see all being alike unto God. Whether you're black or white, bond or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile, it's to create this unity and oneness. That's from 2 Nephi 26, verse 33. And until we can get to that ideal, let's have some patience with prophets and apostles and scripture writers in the past who maybe didn't have that same ideal that they were striving for at that time. Let's turn
1: back to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, verse 14, Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? How many pictures of Jesus have you seen with long hair? Now, we don't know exactly if Jesus had long hair or not. That's how we depict it artistically. Do you really think that if Paul was standing here today, he would command us to remove every single depiction of Jesus with long hair because it's a shame? Remember the context here. There is massive disunity in this Corinthian ward. And Paul is solving that problem. Now, this is my opinion. I can't imagine that he's saying, you know, I really hope this letter goes out to billions of people for thousands of years to come, and that the very specific advice I'm giving in the cultural context will be spread widely, and all the men who have long hair feel bad, and that women are just forever silent. Now, in the Greco-Roman culture, In some ways, it was a bit like um, traditional Middle Eastern culture where women were supposed to be not in public, they're supposed to be silent, the men are supposed to be in charge. You had some of that going on in the Roman culture and in the Jewish culture. Now imagine Paul trying to deal with disunity or disorder. He thinks, well, maybe one way to keep order is to only have the men speak. And the women, not breaking cultural expectations where they shouldn't be speaking in public, have them only speak at home. That would make sense from Paul's perspective, and that's why it's important when we read, that we read from that cultural context and realize, well, we don't live in that kind of world today, and there's some problems with that perspective, and we can let Paul speak to the Corinthians
0: in the Corinthian first war 2,000 years ago. And it, it would be an, uh, a powerful exercise for some of you, to go back and review the most recent general conference and look at all of the talks that were given by women in that general conference and listen to how the Lord speaks to us through their voice, their unique perspective on, on family, on relationships, on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on the scriptures, it's beautiful. And if we were to remove those women's voices From just our general conference or from your sacrament meetings or from your your ward classes, we would be missing out on a great deal of of beauty and revelation that flows from heaven for us as a a collective group. Turn back to Romans chapter
1: 16, one of the greatest letters ever written at all time. This is Paul's like, kind of his triumphal theology. And what does he say here in verse 3? greet in chapter 16, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus. These were people who engaged in the missionary work with him for a long time. Do you think that Paul, if he was standing here, would say, yeah, what I loved about Priscilla is how silent she was as a missionary and how silent she was in the church when she had an opportunity to build and prophesy and edify. Take a look at verse 7, salute Andronicus and Junia, which actually is a female, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles, who were in Christ before me. So here's this other woman who is well known among the apostles and general leadership of the ancient church, and Paul is pointing out to the readers of this Roman epistle, you guys should be listening to her. So again, this is why it's important that we let Paul be Paul for his very specific times and not hold him hostage or ourselves to very precise, specific instructions for one single ward 2,000 years ago that was dealing with a raft of
0: disunity and disorder in their community. That's a really important principle for all aspects of the gospel, that you look for triangulation of these teachings, um, both in frequency and in recency. You, you look across the scriptures and across the words of the living prophets, and don't take one isolated verse or one isolated quote or an idea. You're looking for triangulation to see who said it, when did they say it, how often has it been said, how recently was it said. It's not helpful to go back and find one quote from the 1950s to then defend a certain practice if no prophet and apostle has said anything about that topic in the last 80 years or 70 years, whatever it may be. It's this idea that Paul doesn't emphasize this in his epistle to the Romans. He's not going to emphasize this idea in his epistle to the Thessalonians. hes It's for the Corinthian saints. And I'm not exactly sure all the personalities and all of the exact scenarios going on in Corinth, but Paul was, and he's writing to them. And so we try to find the principles that are repeated in other scriptures and by other prophets. Those are the ones we latch on to and we acknowledge the realities of a culture and a time and a place for the ones that we don't latch onto, like this one. Now, that brings us to chapter 15, which is probably the greatest chapter in all of our scripture canon, as far as Paul building a case for corporal resurrection, or the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and because of his resurrection, the fact that there will be a universal resurrection for all of us.
1: Yeah, bodily resurrection, which would have been really striking for these ancient people. It was not a common idea. We as Christians know this concept, but in Paul's day, it was really unusual, and Paul is trying to give them strong evidence for why this is solid doctrine.
0: And and keep in mind, this letter, once again, we've said it a million times, here we go again, it's going to Corinth, which is near the epicenter of all of this Greek philosophy that doesn't believe in resurrection. They they mock, scoff at that doctrine. So Paul is giving them so many witnesses and he's going to build a case, almost as if he's a lawyer here, trying to prove this point, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. and he doesn't need to build such a huge case for it in his other letters to other people because it's just not as big of a deal to them as it is in Corinth. So here we go. Let's pick it up in verse three. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That doctrine right there, depending on the timing of when these letters are written, Compared to when the Gospels are written, we don't know. And there's huge scholarly debate about the timing of all of these writings in the New Testament. But it's possible that this is one of the earliest writings about what actually happened on the cross at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, at his death. And did you see the significance here? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then he says, and that he was buried, and he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. So he's he's building this case to say, look, the Savior died, and we don't know if the Corinthian saints have the gospels of Mark, or Matthew, or Luke, or John by this time. Many biblical scholars would say they don't, but they have reasons for making a late dating on those gospels. But perhaps here we're saying, look, according to the scriptures, you've read this, Christ died for your sins, and he was uh, risen again. So that's our introduction to the resurrection. And I love
1: how, as the
0: verses go on,
1: there's an amplification from a single, I am giving you what I know, to larger and larger numbers of witnesses.
0: So watch what happens. I received I delivered what I had received. And then he says in verse 5, and that he was seen of Cephas. So that's Peter, Cephas. And then he was seen of the 12. Then verse 6, after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. So, Many of them are still alive, some have died. But you can talk to these people. Some of the
1: Corinthians may have known some of these individuals and had eyewitnesses that they themselves had seen Jesus Christ. Now, let's just tie us into the Book of Mormon briefly. The Book of Mormon has multiple witnesses. Joseph Smith, it's got the three witnesses, it's got the 12 witnesses, and a bunch of indirect witnesses. But how many would you say there are of the plates themselves? 15 or 20 people? Yeah. Okay. And that's a lot. And we make a big deal of it in the church that we have nearly two dozen eyewitnesses that the plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated is real. Twelve, or two dozen, 24. We're talking 530 people. It's a huge amount of people. We're talking about a massive amount of witnesses.
0: Now watch how he ends this. So he started by saying, I delivered unto you that which I had received. Then he gives you that list and then he finishes it up with, and last of all, he was seen of me. So he he begins by giving kind of his testimony, then the witnesses, but he actually puts himself right here as this final witness of the resurrected Lord on that road to Damascus when he saw him. And then he tells you, as of one born out of due time." As if to say, I was born late. I came later to the game than these people did. But the Lord Jesus Christ still showed himself to me, even though I was born late into this covenant. Verse 9, "...for I am the least of the apostles, that I'm not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God." I'm the least of them, and quite frankly, I don't deserve this. Uh, it's, it's that beautiful story that I, I love that Elder Neil L. Anderson tells of being on assignment with President Boyd K. Packer, and President Packer standing at the pulpit saying, I know who I am, and everybody expected him to say, I'm an apostle, but he says, I'm a nobody. And then he turns to, President, or to Elder Anderson, newly called, And he says, and you're a nobody too, and don't you ever forget it. That's powerful. It ties in here with Paul. It's this idea of, it's not about me. An apostle isn't about building a name for themselves. They're about building up the name of Christ. And Paul here is acknowledging his his shortcomings from before. Now, you see, if you, if you look at the scriptures as one, some of you might be thinking, so why is he making such a big deal of this resurrection? Of all the doctrines he could teach, why focus an entire chapter? And we're about to get into all these examples of why this is important. Well, look at 3 Nephi, chapter 23. The Savior is with his Nephite and Lamanite apostles. He has Nephi bring forth the plates and he looks through the plates and he says, wait a minute, didn't I command my my servant Samuel, the Lamanite, to prophesy? And then notice what Jesus Christ focuses on in this conversation. He says, verily I say unto you, I commanded my servant Samuel the Lamanite that he should testify unto this people that at the day that the Father should glorify his name in me that there sh- that there were many saints who should arise from the dead and who should appear unto many, and should minister unto them. And he said unto me, was it not so?" So of all the amazing things that Samuel prophesied, the one thing that Jesus Christ focuses in on is this prophecy that the graves would be open and many people would be resurrected, not just the Lord himself, but that because of his resurrection, these graves would be opened. And Nephi says, yeah, that was so. And then they go and says, many saints did arise and appear unto many and did minister unto them. This is an important doctrine, and it's an earth-shattering doctrine for the Corinthian saints in the first century. And so, he's wanting to drive this point home. It's pending. You will all rise again. Now look how he does that. Before we jump in, let's give just a bit more cultural context.
1: In the city of Corinth, there were a number of what were called funeral cults. Cult sometimes has a negative term uh, meaning today, but it was groups of people who gathered together to celebrate and to give good funerals to people who had died. And everybody would essentially buy a subscription. It's like life insurance, that they'd be part of this group, they'd all hang out in life, and if somebody died, there was enough money to throw a banquet in the honor of the deceased and to make sure they had a good burial. And this was very popular in Corinth. So people already had in their minds these social organizations about celebrating somebody's life when they died. And suddenly, Christianity comes along and it's not just about celebrating that somebody lived a life, now they've died, we've acknowledged them, we remember them, but now we can actually remember them forever because of the resurrection. So, this doctrine would be super exciting for the Corinthian saints. And he is using some of the cultural practices that they would have known to help them to see that there is doctrine here that matters to your eternal life.
0: So, for any of you who, who may be watching, who have lost a loved one or loved ones, and it's still, it's still a little tender for you, and it hurts? These are powerful words that are coming up. He says, verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? He's saying, what good did it do Jesus Christ to be resurrected if you're not going to believe in this? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? He broke the bands of death, not just for himself, but for the edification and the building up of all of us. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. You have, you're wasting your time. Yeah, the word vain means empty, without purpose, wow. So why do we put so much emphasis on resurrection? I think it's tied in here to this glorious part of the plan of salvation of our Heavenly Father. That everybody would come to the earth, live through this test of mortality, we would all die and be resurrected to then be brought up to be judged and receive all of the, the, the blessings as joint heirs with Christ that we were willing and, and able to receive.
1: It's fascinating this phrase, faith is vain, if you don't accept or if resurrection isn't real, which it is, let's think about the principles of the gospel. We have faith in Jesus Christ, including that he was raised from the dead, and with that compelling faith, we're willing to let go of the sins that cause us death, and thus enter into the symbol of death, baptism, and to be uplifted again in baptism, as we will be uplifted from the grave. It all ties in I don't know if we talk about this much as much as we should in the church. We talk about faith in Jesus Christ, but we don't always pair it with the reality of resurrection that a core element of that faith is the fact that we will all be resurrected because Jesus was
0: resurrected. So so let's make that let's drive that point deeper here starting in verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable think about the beautiful hope that the gospel of Jesus Christ contains for for disciples of Christ. You you live and you grow in all of these attributes and these capacities and you build these relationships. And then he says, and if there's no resurrection and it's only in this life that we have hope in Christ, then we're the most miserable of all because we built this huge uh, potential and had these a taste of all these amazing experiences, but it's just for this life, not for the next, not for the eternities, then we're most miserable of all. But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man, or Adam and Eve, came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive." What's that percentage?
1: 100%, and this is such, look at how much he has packed into so few words in
0: two verses.
1: It's, I don't even wanna say anything more because it's just so powerful.
0: Verse 23 says, "'But every man in his own order," or in his own uh, rank, "'Christ the firstfruits, Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. And then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Once again, to add to, not take away, not compete with. The gospel, when when we're teaching and using Restoration Scripture, it's not to compare or to say it's better than. It's this bring all the good that you have in the Bible and let's add to it, not take away or subtract from it. Listen to these powerful words from Doctrine and Covenant, section 76 verse 107. When he, speaking of Christ, shall deliver up the kingdom and present it unto the Father spotless, saying, I have overcome and trodden the winepress alone, even the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. It's this idea that the work of Jesus Christ is to build up his kingdom and to polish it and to purify it and to sanctify it. And we do that one individual at a time. That's how he does his work. And to prepare that kingdom, not for him to selfishly keep it. It was never in the plan for the kingdom to be uh, selfishly kept by Jesus Christ himself. It's always been in the plan to present it spotless to the Father. We can never repay God for all that he has done for us. We can never pay, repay Jesus Christ for the infinite price that he paid to redeem and to save us and to reclaim us. But, oh, we can love them. We can trust them. We can help him in his work to prepare a kingdom that is spotless, we can give ourselves to him as an instrument in his hands to be used to help prepare that kingdom so that when that day comes for it to be presented to the Father, it can be more glorious and beautiful because of all of our combined effort and our trust in the Lord. Oh, I, I believe with all my heart that our prophets long for the day when the earth will be filled with disciples, covenant-keeping, loyal, faithful members of God's kingdom who aren't wishy-washy, who aren't willing to bolt and leave their covenant connection because they're not getting what they want, how they want it, and when they want it. But these are long, deep-rooted, covenant, uh, covenantally loyal saints who are doing everything they can to turn their lives over to the Lord. What a beautiful uh, vision, that is, for the future promises of what the Savior is doing through us on the earth. And he modeled for us
1: doing that. Let's read these verses, 26 and, and 4. The last enemy shall that shall be destroyed is death, and when all things shall be subdued, verse 28, unto him then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him that God may be all in all. So, Jesus first modeled for us how to be humble to do all things for the glory of God. We should be doing similarly, as Tyler just
0: taught. Such a beautiful concept to be to put ourselves under God, and he modeled that so beautifully with the phrase, all things are possible unto thee, remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And We can echo that over and over again as we strive to be more like him. Then he gives you a fascinating verse 29 that has often been used in in church history to prove the, the reality of baptisms for the dead. And I suppose that's good, but Paul's not using resurrection as a proof for baptism for the dead. It's the other way around. In Corinth, they must be performing baptisms for the dead or somewhere where they know about this happening, and he's using that practice as a proof for resurrection. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? It's it's this powerful question of the reason we perform those baptisms is because we have hope on the other side of the veil That there will be a resurrection. He gives them a pretty strong invitation in 34 Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? You can picture the Greek philosopher sitting on Mars Hill, throwing out these really uh, intellectual questions and philosophizing about, "So, So, how is this going to work? And Paul, um, not mincing words in verse 36 says, "'Thou fool, that which thou sowest "'is not quickened, except it die. "'And that which thou sowest, "'thou sowest not that body that shall be, "'but bear grain. "'It may chance of wheat or of some other grain.'" He's saying, whatever seed you're going to put into the ground, whatever you plant, it has to die and be buried for it to bring forth new life. And whatever seed you plant, that's the kind of fruit or vegetable you're going to produce in the end. And then he qualifies this, or clarifies it by saying, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. So, essentially, it's, if you were planted as
1: a human, you'll be resurrected as a human, a dog, a dog. So I know there's a lot of dog
0: lovers out there, but we're not going to be resurrected as dogs or cats or goldfish. And he says in verse 40, there are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. If you look at verse 40a, the footnote, the Joseph Smith translation says, also celestial bodies, and bodies terrestrial, and bodies telestial. But the glory of the celestial one, and the terrestrial another, and the telestial another." So Joseph Smith is able to add this additional degree of glory based on his understanding that he had received in receiving the vision uh, that we now call Doctrine and Covenant section 76. These various degrees of glory, and he describes verse 41, There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown or planted, the body, the seed for resurrection in the future is sown in corruption. It's gonna break down and decay and die. But it is raised in incorruption.
1: And he goes through all these verses showing how God inverses what we think is the natural order, that everything just falls apart,
0: and that God makes the opposite become real. So, now if you take a a passage from the prophet Jacob in the Book of Mormon, in 2nd Nephi 9, he says this with regards to, to this doctrine. He says, for as death hath passed upon all men to fulfill the merciful plan of the great creator, there must needs be a power of resurrection. And the resurrection must needs come unto man by reason of the fall. And the fall came by reason of transgression. And because man became fallen, they were cut off from the presence of the Lord. So you're seeing how these same ideas we've been talking about in chapter 15, we're not taking away from them. We're enhancing them, teaching them from a different angle that I think adds more beauty and depth and clarity to these doctrines. And he says, wherefore it must needs be an infinite atonement, save it should be an infinite atonement, this corruption could not put on incorruption. Wherefore the first judgment which came upon man must needs have remained to an endless duration. And if so, then this flesh must have laid down to rot and to crumble to its mother earth, to rise no more without an infinite atonement of Jesus Christ, all of those philosophies taught by the Greeks, they're true. That's exactly what would happen to us. But that isn't what happened because the Savior Jesus Christ did complete an infinite atonement. He did die, he was buried, and he did raise again. And because of that, we will also be raised in incorruption. So Now let's jump down to chapter 15 verse 45, and so it is written in Genesis chapter 2, it says, the first man Adam was made a living soul, and the last Adam, which would be Christ, was made a quickening spirit. Quickening means to be alive. Howbeit that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. So, you're seeing this progression, we're in the Garden of Eden, in a spiritual state, and because of the fall, we now come into this physical death realm, where we enter this realm by a spiritual death, leaving the presence of God, and it's through Christ, the last Adam, to use his his wording here, that we enter back into a spiritual realm, the the spirit world awaiting the resurrection where we then become fully restored, never to see corruption again. What I
1: love about Paul's
0: doing here, let's just
1: remember the context, there's been massive disunity in this word, chaos. There's lots of reasons that people have been doing things that create chaos, and Paul is concluding his letter with the doctrine of resurrection. It's almost as if he's saying, all the things that you guys are bringing to the ward meeting that's causing so much chaos, can we just be fixated on what matters most, which is our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, and resurrection is one of the key principles that drives that faith. And you think about it like, do I have time to have disunity With my fellow brothers and sisters when I am spending time in the joy of the knowledge of the salvation I've received through the last Adam, Jesus Christ, and the resurrection that is promised. It's
0: powerful. Now you come down to verse uh, 50, and it says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Some would read that and say, wait a minute, I thought the whole chapter was about resurrection. Now he's saying, no, if you have flesh and blood, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. And that is true. There's a word in there that is attached to our physical state on earth in mortality. And the word is blood. The Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood, which is symbolic of our humanity, our fallen nature. It's in blood that death, the seeds of death are carried in our body. You'll also notice in scriptures you never refer to a resurrected being as having a body of flesh and blood. It's always a body of flesh and bone. It's a tangible, physical, corporeal body, but not a body of flesh and blood. So, he's saying this, this current corruptible body that you and I have, this body of flesh and blood, it can't inherit a kingdom of glory. Therefore, it must needs be laid down. It has to be given up and planted for the body of flesh and bone without the blood to to be given that opportunity to live. And he says, uh, verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Some of you can hear Handel's Messiah Echoing in the background, if you're familiar with this particular song. And a twinkling literally means a blink of an eye. It's just a fancy way of saying a blink or a snap of the fingers. So this gives us a little hint into something we're going to talk about uh, in much greater detail when we cover 1 Corinthians. Paul very clearly has this perspective that the second coming is right around the corner corner. And he's telling them, we're not all going to sleep but we're gonna be changed in this at the, at the last trump, when the trumpet shall come, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality." So his idea here is, is if you're alive in a body of flesh and blood when Jesus comes again, then your body has to be changed in the twinkling of an eye from the corruptible to the incorruptible, and he's talking to them as if it's pretty imminent. It's pretty soon. And we're going to see that again way more clearly when we get to the, the letter to the Thessalonians. And he says, verse uh, 55 and 56, this is, if you will, a taunt song towards death. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the works of the Lord, for as much you as know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. As long as everything's in the Lord, everything you're doing, all these efforts you're making, it's not in vain. So as he concludes
1: the letter, he tells them about his future plans, which is to take up a collection. And our understanding is for saints back in Jerusalem, apparently there was more needy people back there than in some of these richer places in the Roman Empire like Corinth or Galatia. And so he's telling them, get your fast offerings ready to go, I'll collect those and I'll bring those with
0: me when I return up to Jerusalem. And a fun little detail that he gives you there in verse two is that upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store. they're, They're putting some emphasis on Sunday, the first day of the week the Jewish Sabbath is Saturday, and it's almost as if they're they're setting themselves a, a special day, so the Sabbath for them becomes Sunday in celebration and memory of what event? The resurrection of Jesus Christ that we just got through talking about in chapter 15. And so that, that transition probably from worshiping the greatest event up to that time being the creation of the world. So, we rest on the Sabbath, but then the only event that is even more amazing than the creation of the world would then be the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ culminating with his resurrection. So, we're going to celebrate that on the Sabbath. However, if there are some exceptions to this, if you go to Jerusalem, for instance, and try to go to a sacrament meeting, at the BYU Jerusalem Center. And if you show up on Sunday, there won't be a meeting because in Jerusalem, you celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday at the Jerusalem Center.
1: In fact, when I lived in Cairo, Egypt, we celebrated on Friday, which happened to be the holy day for the majority of the country, which was Muslim. So, it's interesting how the church kind of adopts uh, whatever the holy day is for that the large community where the church happens to be. We'll celebrate on that day, but usually, most of the world over, it's on Sunday, which is again to remember Jesus was resurrected, and therefore, all of us will be uplifted.
0: And so now we wind down this letter, and he's been he's been pretty forceful with them. You remember clear back in chapter one, he he opened it up, guns a blazing. Now he's gonna going to close this letter with some final uh, counsel. An admonition. Verse 13, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. The word quit there in verse 13 is behave, rise up, O men of God, is basically what he's saying, and be strong, let all your things be done with charity. So, as he closes his letter, he acknowledges certain individuals who he uses this phrase in the bottom, of, or in verse 18: "For they have refreshed my spirit and yours." Therefore, acknowledge them that are such. Such a beautiful descriptor of what relationships in the kingdom of God are intended to do: refresh your spirit, edify you, build you up. And then he says, verse 19: "The churches of Asia salute you." Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house." So this great couple that they're tent makers, Paul has picked up their trade. He has spent so much time and energy and effort with Priscilla and Aquila, and he's saying, they also acknowledge you and they greet you. Which is back to
1: Paul has been working diligently together with this woman Priscilla and her husband that we understand as a husband, Aquila, And the point here is that Paul sees that the work of God cannot go forward without men and women working together in harmony.
0: Love that. Now verse 20, he says, "...all the brethren greet you. Greet ye one another with an holy kiss." So that is another specific practice that he gave them in Corinth for some reason, and he's not giving that to every other letter recipient. But for them... Greet one another with an holy kiss, and then he says, "The salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand." So often he would probably have a scribe; he would dictate, and the scribe would write. But Paul's very literate. But in this case, he concludes it by saying, "The salutation of me, of Paul, with mine own hand."
1: So the readers or the listeners might be able to inspect this document and see that Paul's signature is on it, and it would have. The, the writing would have looked different than the
0: scribes' writing. So then he he finalizes it by saying, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. The Greek word there means excommunicated. Um, it's It's this cut off, destroyed, wiped out. And then he finishes maranatha, which is the Lord's coming, judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. What a beautiful way to end this letter that was filled with some rebuke. Now, we're going to set the stage for next week's set of scriptures from 2 Corinthians. There's a principle in the Doctrine and Covenants that says, rebuking be times with sharpness, but showing an increase of love afterward? Well, he gave some pretty strong rebukes in 1 Corinthians. Get ready, because the next couple of lessons are filled with an increase of love and kindness and mercy and grace flowing from this apostle as he recognizes after he's received word back that some of the things he said were taken pretty harshly. And so you're going to see a kind, gentle um, Response in 2 Corinthians. So to conclude, it doesn't matter how many people have seen the resurrected Lord if I don't devote my life to him. It doesn't matter how many witnesses or testifiers there are of him or his, of his gospel if I refuse to listen and to hearken and obey and add my voice to that mix, of all of the the symphony of testifiers and witnesses of Christ, let us all add our voice to that, that grand collection of people to say, God lives. The Lord Jesus Christ is his only begotten Son who was sent to the earth to be lifted up by men and slain for the sins of the world, who was buried and was resurrected and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. And because he broke the bands of death, so will we. That is the glorious message to the world of Christianity. And we leave that with you in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness.